too much fun with this riverside soundboard you know i mean maybe there's no you such thing have, you gotta no have a little thing. fun, too much with, fun with the soundboard that's true that's very true <laughs> oh man all right where, where are we cooking today what do we got was there any news happen this week that we should talk about <laughs> is there any news happening this week it's a great question it's pretty pretty quiet i mean i think there was this uh this new venture fund that just announced oh, their that announce? their fund oh, that's right that's right we announced that do you, you, you yeah. heard about this? Yeah. Okay. So the inaugural fund, fund one, a uh, very creative name uh, for seven, seven, six was announced yesterday. So 150 million oversubscribed, blah, 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 great investors. And, you know, we, we did a very cool uh, uh, profile with, I, I really appreciated Alex talked to everyone on the founding team, uh, me, Caitlin and Lizzie. And then we really spoke to the ambitions for the firm sort of the software first mindset that we have around building technology to do the work that we do better, cheaper, faster, so that we can focus on the human parts of the job and do those really well. And, and then a lot of our commitments to, to hopefully helping create a better industry, a better world through the investments we do, through the ways that we do business, and even our LP base. That was the thing that got a lot of play. A lot of folks asked, um, whether it was online or in media, about you know, we set these LP targets. We wanted LPs being limited partners, which are just investors in our fund. We said from jump, half of them were going to be women and 15% of them were going to be black or indigenous people because we wanted the people we were making money for to be representative of the country we lived and worked in, the United States. And, and also, because we have this software mindset and this community mindset, we wanted a community that was representative of the community we served. Uh, in the country we lived in. And oh, look at that. That's, <laughs> you are having too much fun with that soundboard. Thank you. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, it was a chance to build something uh, from a blank canvas that I've, I've wanted to do for a long time. And I was grateful to be able to get to work on it with Lizzie and Caitlin. And now we got a great team. We have seven now uh, full-time on the team. And yeah, it's exciting. We're we're cruising. So now we're finally public because the SEC, you finance, you capital guys have very specific rules about talking about your venture firm while still technically fundraising. Mm -hmm. So now we no, can actually no, talk. No general solicitation. That's right. And my but my lawyers had scared me so much over the last <laughs> decade of fundraising that they're like, anytime you are fundraising, Alexis no press like don't even tweet about it don't even hint about it because i think on the one hand they know i mean like they're lawyers so they're very conservative they do great work craig eric if you're listening you do great work but uh but their their job is to protect us protect the firm they know that i'm a public figure and so it's really important that i just don't even so i, I just avoid press almost altogether unless it's like hey we want you to come to talk about paid family leave or come talk about wall street bets like i can talk about those i just i don't I, mean, I could talk about specific portfolio companies, but I got to be really careful with how I do it. So anyway, now the gloves are off and, you know, 
I have some more spare cycles because I'm not spending time fundraising and it's unlocked Lizzie as well. So we'll be able to obviously help our companies more and do more to build the firm. And then also maybe a little bit more uh, press to talk about the things we're doing and what our founders are doing. And yeah, you this, can talk we'll all about this. 776 now. Yeah, I can be really blatant about how excited I am about 776. And so, yeah, that's that's uh, that was the big news this week. So I was pretty excited. Actually, the best part of it, speaking of the intersection of community and capital, uh, one of our, I'm going to say founders, she's basically a founder. She's an early hire of our first investment at Dispo. Um, her internet name is Boop, or her Twitter name is Boop. She made some beautiful art. Uh, I saw this this morning when I woke up and I retweeted it. It was a, it's basically a matrix poster uh, where she photoshopped in the three of us. Uh, it was tweeted from the Dispo account about 13 hours ago. We can, we'll put this in the video. I mean, Good. this is, I, I was so touched and so amused. I didn't realize I needed this in my life. I've never seen VC uh, sort of fan art or community art, or I don't know what to call it art, but like really happy um portfolio company art like this before. And uh, and so, you know, we do the work for our founders. We do the work for our founders and their teams. So it, it means a lot seeing this from, you know, the, the people who were serving at the end of the day. So, so are we just dope. Matrix is a great movie. All living in the Matrix then? We always have been. We've always been in the simulation, Michael. Just some people haven't woken up yet. I'm not even, I'm not going to make a red pill joke. But, uh, but what do we got? What do we got, man? There's a lot on community here when we unpack mm. like one now that you can talk about your fund and the gloves are off i think yeah. we should we should start with like okay so how, you know how do you think about community when you look at investing in companies mm. i want to know that almost all the companies that we invest in have the have the potential to create community. And, and that's a, that's an interesting thing. I think there are, <clears throat> there are undoubtedly some founders who really understand community from day one. And you see that in the way that they build their business and the way they talk about it. There's just, it's, it's obvious. Um, probably the best example of that would be leading uh, the, I guess it was the A in uh, Comsor, which is an operating system for communities where Mac, the CEO, you know, I had invested, but actually sort of warehoused a few investments that I had done personally into that from like seed or pre-seed stage. And even from the very jump, it was clear, Mac deeply understood online communities. He'd been building them for years. He's really into Lego, actually. That was one of the sort of early online communities that he was into and, and building. And and it was obvious that he knew his community so well because he was himself from that community of community managers and online community builders. And he was building this operating system for people just like him who needed to justify the return on investment to their boss, who needed to justify the value and sort of then also better be able to understand the value of communities so that they could be better, right? You can't improve what you don't measure. And everyone had, in the last few years, finally started to crystallize around the idea that community mattered, but they didn't have a good way to track it and improve it. Now they do across basically any platform you could host a community. So like that's the, the epitome of it. You spend five minutes with a founder CEO like Mac, and you just know, maybe it's game-recognized game, but like you just know how deeply 
he understands community and how his community in particular is like the, it's very meta, but the community of communities uh, because it's all community builders and creators. And so I think any business that we end up investing in at 776 either has it very obviously because one of the founders is doing it pretty actively. It has to be a founder. You really can't phone this in because it needs to be in the DNA of the org. You have to get buy-in from the founder. They have to believe in it. So it's either coming from the founder themselves or you see it as something that they know is not innate to them, but they're going to empower people as early as possible to really do that great work. Um, a good example of that would be Lolly. So crypto rewards, Bitcoin rewards while you shop online, kind of like honey, except instead of you know fiat, you get internet money, <laughs> Bitcoin. And you know their community team, their social media team, their comms work is very engaging. It taps into a, a, a really powerful zeitgeist right now around crypto. Like it's almost borderline religious fanaticism. Um, but their whole job is to bring that into the mainstream. And so the way that you talk to a community that way, the way that you you welcome people instead of alienate them is a subtle but really important art if you want to help crypto go mainstream. And I think there is, it, it is almost inescapable for a company that 776 invests in to, to have and invest in community. Maybe it's because we're a bunch of Reddit people um, but but I think it's also just because the the world has changed so much in the last five years, uh, and and we're now talking about look we're gonna we have content to talk about with the intersection of community and capital every single week. We have so much content, and five years ago and certainly ten years ago, I think we still would have had an okay podcast, but it just wouldn't have had as rich a mine of content as there is now. And, and again, it will not slow down. I keep, I, go, I went on CNBC and Bloomberg yesterday talking about the fund and it's inescapable some story about meme stocks or crypto and like they have to ask and I'm happy to answer, but it is, it is such a big part of reality now, especially if you're thinking about finance and capital allocation and everyone is I, I think still a little unsettled by it. The the industry is still very much like what is going on. And so like the novelty is gonna ha eventually have to wear off folks because it's here. It's not not changing. Uh, and it's, it's not here. going away, right? No way. I mean, I think uh, there, there has been a complete mind shift, certainly from my perspective with a more traditional financial services lens mm -hmm. on it that we now have to live in a world where this might happen, where companies or community aggregation platforms, Reddit, Discord, mm. even just tw Twitter. Group chat. Yeah, group, exactly. But mm. I mean, what Twitter's done in crypto, Twitter is not yeah, the vehicle for investing into crypto. Lolly mm. is, Coinbase is, BlockFi is. Mm. But there's these platforms that have created community around that. And I think we, it, we can now, we, we cannot avoid it now. As we think about investing into certainly public markets, but even in private markets, because companies are now impacted by the way the community thinks about them. Word can get out in either positive or negative ways. People mm -hmm. can aggregate themselves, right, in, in ways that we've really, at least online, never seen before. It's probably been done offline before. But mm -hmm. I think the community that Wall Street Bets has created is incredibly powerful. People will listen to it, follow it, 
and yeah. act on it, right? So there's some, something really powerful to that. But I think that gets to something pretty interesting when you mention companies like Lolly, for example, where mm-hmm. you think about building community there. They're obviously building community within their own customer base, mm-hmm. but yet there's also such powerful forces of community outside of Lolly itself. And it's Bitcoin as a community or as a religion that mm-hmm. may actually be the accelerant for Lolly. So, how mm-hmm. much do you think community has to happen within the company? And when you think about like the company's mm-hmm. ability to create community for themselves and their customers versus an outside force, could be oh. Reddit with Robinhood, it could be Twitter with Bitcoin, and that impacts Lolly, and then people. Mm-hmm. Go on and go go on Lolly because they hear about Bitcoin on Twitter. Mm-hmm. How how do you think about the interplay of external forces of community on companies rather than companies just creating community themselves? I would think of it like <clears throat> thinking of a good analogy. The the external forces you're talking about are the zeitgeist, the spirit, literally the spirit of the time. And I would think of it like I don't know if it's wind or let's say rushing water or a wave, you have energy that is constantly moving in that zeitgeist. So crypto being a big one, right? The the role of the company is to try to create that similar energy or that similar ecosystem internally with a community. And it is easier to be able to feed off the energy of an existing bigger trend than it is to build one from zero. It can still be done for sure, but in a lot of these cases, it ends up sort of riding on those bigger waves. Um, However, uh, I'm trying to think of a really good specific one. So like, but but then maybe the the new community that ends up getting formed that is really a part of a brand can be really unique to itself or maybe is pulling from different bigger trends. So uh, we, we announced uh, leading a Series A in Simulate, uh, which is the, the Tesla of plant-based foods. They, they make nugs and, and a few other products that are going to get unveiled soon. Spicy nugs being my favorite. They're delicious plant-based chicken nuggets. They are as a brand and community goes, and I'm biased, obviously, but they are up there with beyond and impossible, which is just absurd given how much bigger and more established those brands and those companies are. Those businesses are much, much bigger. Nugs is only a couple of years old, but they have built a diehard community, largely Gen Z, a little bit of millennials in there too, built on internet culture and memes. If you spend any time on their social media channels, you see the way they talk to their community is, I mean, it may seem borderline absurd to the average person, but if you really pay attention to internet culture, it it is so obvious that the way they're marketing, the way they're storytelling, the way they're community building is, it's unlike a traditional plant-based business. There is clearly a zeitgeist around plant-based. There's clearly mimetic energy around that lifestyle, but it's, it's, it's tapping into a bit of that But what makes it so exciting is it's building its own new energy around the kind of like absurdity of loving a frozen chicken nugget. Like it is a self-aware, genuine, amusing thing 
in an industry that at times I think takes itself very, very and almost too seriously. And, and so that becomes the counter energy to that bigger zeitgeist, which is establishing something new that I think potentially is very, very big. And it takes that deliberate community building from day one to carve that out. Because, you know, in a world where there is so many people riding on that train uh, or that wave of sustainability, of health, of all the other reasons why plant-based is so popular right now, um, they're, they're not quite running contrarian to it because they still ascribe those values, but they, they, they have something that is unique enough and, and sort of in its tone and language and, and community that is, is something they can really build on their own. And, and that's powerful, man. When that happens, you, you, you absolutely should be paying attention because it's, it's very special. Well, what you're getting at is storytelling, right? Mm. And it, it sounds like there's actually some pretty interesting similarities. You were a history major. I was an international relations uh, political science major mm. around where there's kind of some comparisons between maybe nation state building mm. and building a startup and startups mm. building their own community. When you say yeah. what Nugs is doing around creating this particular storytelling, you're creating mm -hmm. a narrative. Mm -hmm. Startups have to create narratives or stories to be able to differentiate themselves, build a brand, and build a community. How, how do you think about all of that when it comes to actually creating a successful startup slash nation state? Oh, that one's that one's tricky. Uh, there is even the idea of nation state creation is getting interesting, interestingly challenged. Balaji has a recent post. Do you, did you see this? Mm -hmm. Where if you wanted to create one today, you could really think about creating it digitally first. That's the easiest way to get to your MVP because you need that community. And then you could start to coalesce people around that in physical space, but probably last. You would do so many other things to build community bonds and culture and all that using all the internet technology we have. And it's, it sounds radical when applied to a nation state, because it is, but you can think of plenty of examples of cultures that started out online before they manifested in like the first conference. So, you know, whether that you could think of, there's plenty of like anime culture, comic book culture, right? Before Comic-Con was a big deal, it was a tiny subculture but as the internet grew, more and more people were able to connect online, form community, realizing, oh, you're into this too, so am I, let's bond, and it amplified. But I think, I don't know, if, if I look at community building now, it absolutely makes sense to start digital and, and to do it just like as if you were tackling a startup. Uh, to, to find the minimum viable community. Like what is, what is the most basic way? I mean, we, I fired up, I, I was a small angel investor in a company years ago called Geneva that is one of a few tools trying to build like a new community platform. Basically learn from Reddit and Discord and Slack and myriad of other things and say, okay, let's try to build something, taking all the kind of best practices that's specifically for kind of next generation community builders. I wanted to dog food it. So we spun up a little 776 community. We've got like 250 people in it. I try to hang out there, ask questions. It's an interesting, it's an interesting mix of folks, basically just from a couple of tweets who are like, yeah, I want to show up here and talk about startups. Um, but doing that alone does not a community make. It is going to take a real investment of time and energy and community building and, and like 
this is the offline type work of like, or the, the things that we're all sort of familiar with in the offline world of just like, you know, what it takes to build a community, right? Doing, coming up with clever ideas for a Tuesday giveaway and, and starting great productive conversations. So it's, it's a real time investment. That's for sure. And, and then just imagine now you finding, uh, you sent over that link to, was it Goldman leadership mm-hmm. that is now in a clubhouse doing clubhouse events? What, what do you think that pitch is like? Because so, these guys are like, I have to do a what? I have to do a clubhouse? So this is a, to borrow a political science analogy, this is a soft power mm. strategy, mm. right? So I think it's actually a very smart move by Goldman Sachs. They, I'm sure you talk about lawyers. Mm. Uh, Goldman Sachs certainly has their own <laughs> compliance department. Yeah. Uh, they are a very good compliance department. So I'm sure there are many things that people cannot talk about. Uh, on on this clubhouse forum, but Goldman had a a forum where their CEO actually David Solomon, who comes from the banking side of the business, mm-hmm. very um, focused on building relationships. He's a relationship kind of guy and mm-hmm. thinks that's really important for the firm. Mm-hmm. Which, in a time when a firm like Goldman Sachs has transitioned from purely an institutional business, so didn't deal with the end retail customer. Goldman Sachs now has a retail bank. They have Marcus. They Mm -hmm. have a wealth management business that spans pure retail individual investors all the way through ultra high net worth. So Mm -hmm. they're really becoming a bank that serves the individual consumer as well. So I think it's, it's a great soft power move to have the ability for people to come and listen to how Goldman thinks about, in this case, it was about M&A and IPOs in the IPO market, which obviously Goldman participates in, right? They do IPOs for company uh, companies. They take companies public. Mm-hmm. They do SPACs for companies right now. Uh, and that's, that's their business on the investment banking side of the house. But to enable the community that they're trying to build to listen, I mean, heck, maybe they've listened to some of the things we've talked about and said, hey, we, we need to engage with our community mm-hmm. because traditional financial institutions historically have not been great <laughs> engaging with the community yeah, that's one way or, to put or it. building a community at all, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think, you know, 50% of Americans touch Bank of America in some way, shape, or form, right? They've gotten a mortgage from Bank mm. of America. They have a checking account. They use the investment platform, whatever it may be. Mm. But I don't think any of us feel an affinity to Bank of America. We're not going to go around wearing a Bank of America t-shirt no, like no you're chance. going around wearing that Nike, Nike swoosh. <laughs> no chance. Right? No. So they, they, they don't engender that kind of community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're seeing fintech companies in today's day and age. I mean, Nubank has done it with their purple card. They have mm-hmm. 35 million customers in Brazil mm. alone. Brazil alone. Right? And they're a, you know, they're a 35 plus billion dollar business that Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway just put $500 million into. So, you know, there are fintech companies that are figuring out how to create a brand, Mm -hmm. how to create community. And I think now what's what's interesting and part of the reason why I asked the question actually about, you know, companies creating community themselves versus companies leveraging tools or infrastructure or, or just the forces in an environment around them to create community is that I think Goldman is leveraging the infrastructure or rails that Clubhouse has created. They're not creating Mm. their own community. Maybe they have people focused on building community. Um, You know, I I don't know. And I think that would actually be a pretty interesting thing for them to explore, you know, because that's that's a way to engage your customers in ways that others can't. But they're leveraging the rails of Clubhouse to engage with their customers. And I think 
you know, a lot of businesses can probably learn from this, particularly incumbents, as use this effectively new age radio channel mm -hmm. to engage your customers and speak directly to them in ways that maybe either wouldn't have been acceptable before yeah. or you wouldn't have thought about doing before. There is, you'd mentioned this interesting sort of enterprise play for Clubhouse, because let's be real, for the incumbents, there is no, there's basically no chance that Goldman is able to spin up its own, like, Goldman Radio, tune in, download our app. Uh, like, there just isn't, they're going to need to ride on the rails of other people's both audience and, you know, distribution as well as technology. And so it makes sense to figure out ways to, to partner uh, because I see the value in it. If we believe that some version of whether it's Clubhouse or Twitter Spaces or whatever, some version of this is the future of live radio, what used to be, like that still serves a huge audience, uh, a very traditional audience historically, but like that's going to be an important part of infrastructure that Goldman needs to be on in order to get their message out. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, and who's to say that that Twitter has not been incredibly valuable for certain companies? In some ways, mm -hmm. bad. I mean, I think certain CEOs have Come probably on, tripped over their Elon feet a little alone. bit. Leave Elon uh, alone. <laughs> <laughs> in in public by saying Poor certain Elon. things, um, but at the same time, it's He's also an incredible way to access large number of people. And, and mm -hmm. to go back to the nation states piece as well, I think we now live in a borderless world in many respects, at least digitally. Yep. <clears throat> so yep. you can create communities that are borderless in a sense. Now, you may then create borders around them once you've reached out to people in different parts of the world, and then you may create your own kind of velvet rope mm -hmm. community around that. But you can now reach people in different ways. And it's not to say that you can't change people's minds mm -hmm. or give people a different perspective on your business. I mean, I think Goldman going on Clubhouse is a really smart move on their part, right? They look young and innovative, and, and to their credit, mm. They are incredibly innovative. I mean, Go Goldman Sachs has survived mm -hmm. and thrived, honestly, as far as incumbent banks go, in large part because they constantly innovate. And they're thinking about these things, even if they're a larger institution that's it's hard to move that oil tanker you mm -hmm. know, right away, like a little speedboat can move. But they're still able to move and change with the times. I mean, five, six, seven years ago, they didn't have a retail bank. Mm. Now they do, because they realize how important reaching the end consumer was and how consumer fintech was changing our lives. I think there's plenty of great digital banks out there, but who's to say that Goldman Sachs won't win the digital bank or neobank revolution? I mean, I think, I don't feel very confident in them doing it, but you're right. There is a chance, there is a path. And they certainly have the resources and the expertise, et cetera, et cetera. And if they're making these moves now, they're they're doing the right stuff or as right as they can. But you know, I just love the Davids. Can't can't get too excited for the Goliaths. <laughs> oh, I, look, we're, we're startup guys. We love mm. the Davids, of course, and and we we know that Davids can move faster. For but sure. I think in financial services, though, mm -hmm. this is where it'll be really interesting to see if incumbents are able to leverage all of these community tools, some of which you're investing into, yeah. others of which have been created, like whether it's Clubhouse or Twitter, mm. because a lot of people are living online 
and want to engage with institutions in different ways, incumbents have brands, they have the regulatory infrastructure, they have people, and they have capital and assets to to, to actually show some level of trust. I mean, financial services, trust is a really important part of this, and Huge. people want to keep their assets or invest their assets into places where they know that institution will be around for a long time. So I think in, in financial services, it may be a little different than in other worlds mm -hmm. because of those very facts. Well, look, you have... So I, I agree. The, the thing that Robinhood and the GameStop fiasco of January this year showed me, though, is yes, and this is just, this reminds me a lot from building Reddit. There were all these moments where multiple times over 15, 16 years with Reddit where the, the community, especially the most vocal part of the community, was really upset, disappointed. You choose your adjective, but rarely ever actually left. And and so one of the things that's going to be interesting for CEOs and, and company builders to, to learn is how to moderate that feedback and, and not moderate, but how to interpret that feedback. Because I think at the end of the day, right, it should you're, it logically makes sense that people care, should care and do care so much about where their money is or about anything that does financial services, right? That is you know, what you're paying your rent with. Like, yeah, you should care. But even in the wake of Robinhood, you know, having some serious performance issues during some really volatile trading sessions and a lot of people being really upset, I don't think that many people actually switched out because it's still pretty high friction. I mean, the, the apps don't make it that easy on you. Banks don't make it that easy on you. But it's still pretty, even if they made it easy user experience and made it like one click to basically transfer out, I still don't think those numbers would be too high. And I'm just, not to be cynical about it, I just don't know what it would take to overcome the average sort of amount of inertia where, you know, yes, there might be 5%, 10%, maybe tops of users who'd really say enough is enough, I'm going. But I I, I think what actually pulls people over is the, is the, the pull of a better experience versus the push of my current experience is so bad. That's a really interesting point because I think many people who've been around for a long time and even older customers may not think of that in this way, but younger people who've lived online for their entire lives and are used to incredible user experiences digitally, mm -hmm. do you think they have a different mindset about this and they will be less forgiving than somebody who's lived in both the offline and now online world when it comes to provision of financial mm -hmm. services? Yes, but it will be, we talked about Wells Fargo, like how, how horrible can Wells Fargo possibly treat their customers? And yet they still are around, right? They still, you probably know better than I do, but they're still like viable, right? Arguably. <laughs> they still have, they still have a ton of customers. They're, I mean, they're a big business and they're, they're probably not going away. And I think the other interesting thing there is it's, if you look at a chart of banks, over the course of the last 50 years in the US or so, mm -hmm. there was there's this, this great graphic of like there were like 
tons of banks in the 70s and 80s. And then all of a sudden you see that shrink and it consolidates to like Mm -hmm. five or six major players. And then now you see it expand again with all these different neobanks and neo brokerage firms. But Hmm. what's interesting is if history repeats itself, we will see the same thing where we then see consolidation Mm -hmm. again, right? Either with incumbents who need to acquire in order to actually have Mm. access to those customers that they can't do themselves or what you're seeing in the neobank world. I mean, whether it's Robinhood, whether it's Moneyline, whether it's Stash, Empower, Chime, also they all, and Empower, <laughs> absolutely, right? They, they all are going horizontal because they want to own the customer. That's mm. the most valuable thing is owning the customer, increasing LTV yep. of that customer that value. while acquiring that customer at a certain CAC. Yeah. or cost to customer acquisition for, for, for those who aren't as familiar. And, and that's mm. really the power is these neobanks are acquiring digitally much lower cost. If they can then increase the lifetime value of that customer, because that customer is really valuable when you think about adding on other products like oh, yeah. insurance or mortgages, mortgages or yeah. investment products beyond the checking account, that's where it starts to get really powerful. So you're going to see these banks expand mm. horizontally and then win. And then maybe there's a few winners and there's probably going to be consolidation. Yeah. Okay. Now the wrench in this. So I, I agree with these cycles of consolidation and then sort of splintering out and then more consolidation. I, I think that trend will continue. The wrench now though is DeFi, decentralized finance built on things like, you know, the Ethereum blockchain and, and more <laughs> to come. That is a real threat, again, when you consider for true digital natives, no loyalty because they don't have, right? Traditional institutions are almost a liability as opposed to <laughs> like, oh, that's, I trust them too, as opposed to a, a perk. And let me pull up my rainbow wallet. Like I'm looking at the experience now of like, I mean, this is wild, right? This is through rainbow, a chance, uh, here we go a sort of delightful user experience to look at different tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, like there is, I mean, I even have, you've got Uniswap pools. Uh, one interesting thing, right? I even have a savings account in um, DAI. Here, hold on, let me pull this up. And so because we have basically programmable money now, we can create a really interesting user experience. There's a massive community of people who want this. And like right now, I can see, I don't mind showing you this. So <laughs> I threw a hundred grand in die to collect, you know, 2%, uh, was it 2.25 API, APY, excuse okay. me. You want to know what Bank of America what's gives my, you on, what's your, my rate on your savings? Right now for hundred K? Is it negative yet? It's a little better than 30 basis points. I mean, right. I, like, and, and so I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is bonkers, right? Because I'm not entrusting that money to an institution. I'm entrusting that money to code and a community and it's working. And, and for someone, either someone who comes from Mars, I like that example because apparently they're now UFOs. So some, if I were explaining- Soon it's going to be the other way. Soon people Mars are going to be talking yes. about us going to Mars. <laughs> but like, now that they're like for for a consumer who doesn't have any bias, so Gen Z or you know the hypothetical alien, 
It's the decision between do I use a modern app to turn this money into more money while I sleep? And it's nice because it is crypto, it goes out to the millionth place. I don't know. There's a lot of decimals uh, and you get to actually see it moving up, right? <laughs> like even these, these subtle things as a user experience just feel better, right? The user experience of actually seeing, I, I can visually see the number of money going up that feels a lot better, regardless of what the actual APY is, like it just feels better. And, and if I'm handing you now the Bank of America app that has a the same 100K in it, and it's not, it's literally not moving. And then in terms of actual yield every year, it's not moving. Like why, why would I choose that? Do you trust the decentralized system more than you would no. trust Bank I only, of America I, or Wells Fargo? The, the proof is in the fact that I only have 100K in it, right? Like, I, <laughs> like, no. But if I, I. So banks are not dead. They're not, but I have to challenge myself on why that is. And I think the only reason I don't is mostly irrational. And, and it's mostly just the hang up of, like, I, I didn't have, like, I mean, we were a fine middle class family, but like, I was not exposed to like high finance or a ton of wealth as a kid. And so, me opening up a savings account was a really important thing because my parents were like, okay, like you're going to put that extra money from waiting tables at Pizza Hut in there. You're going to collect interest. Like, and also my parents, God bless them, just didn't, they, they weren't, they, they weren't as deep into the layers of finance and how basically how rich people make money and how rich people get more rich that like, no, get a savings account. Like this is great. You can get some different, different plans. You can get some CDs. But like that was ingrained in my adolescent brain as I was learning about money for the first time. And that has an impact to this day. Like I'd like to think I've gotten smarter since then. I'm now almost 40, but it's still there. And so the adolescent brain of a kid, I mean, I've got, I've got, I mean, I've had 13 year olds show me their rainbow wallet <laughs> and they're like, yeah, look at this. And I hear the tokens I'm looking to buy. And like, what do you think? And Again, we talk all the time about how important financial literacy is, and it is. And please, like, you know, do your research, do your work. Um, but the user experience cannot be denied. It just, it, this is compelling. And, and that's the biggest threat to traditional banks, which is, it's just not compelling. I mean, it's, it's a terrible experience to not, to, to lose money basically every year uh, <laughs> in the wake of inflation because of a crap savings rate. But like, DeFi is, 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 Decentralized finance is creating a new economy that I think uh, a digital native will be way faster to sign up for. And they're also not thinking like, if I put all of my net worth into it, they're, they're thinking like, I've got a grand. Like, of course, I'll put $1,000 into it. Like, why not? But if you're on-ramped there, and we've talked about this in regard mm. to alt too, right? Younger mm. people might start their investing careers by buying sports cards for $50. And then they mm. now have a place to custody those assets. Same yeah. thing with with the Rainbow Wallet or a Coinbase Wallet. They now mm -hmm. have the ability to custody those assets and keep those assets there and then therefore create a sticky relationship with that mm. financial services provider as mm. opposed to Wells Fargo. I mean, I think we, we saw it a few weeks ago with, with kid banking apps. I mean, Greenlight raised a few hundred million bucks from Andreessen at, at a two-plus billion dollar valuation. Mm. And that's a business that now wants to expand further into people's financial services lives. And they're go they're, they're obviously enabling the parents to have controls over what the kids do, but they're going to help kids invest. Uh, 
not just save money or spend money. But that's, I mean, I think that's a more traditional bent on all of this. But if you're saying 13-year-olds are using their rainbow wallet, I mean, they want a better user experience. Sure, because they're on TikTok all day or they're on yeah. Instagram. And maybe not even Instagram. I don't even know what 13-year-olds uh, are on definitely not on Instagram. Well, some of them are, <laughs> but it's a lot of TikTok and probably some Snap. But that, that to me, was, was striking. And again, I try to, especially doing investing these days, I really try to shed as much of my bias as I can. It's not not possible to shed all of it, but I try to shed as much as I can to try to look at it from fresh eyes. And again, if you just, two phones sitting right next to each other, $1,000 in you know, name your name your neobank account where the savings rate has to be abysmally small versus in Rainbow App or Coinbase, Coinbase Wallet, it doesn't matter, where you're actually able to invest in something that's, I mean, 2.5% still not, you know. I mean, okay, in, in, in today's environment, that's great, right? That's amazing. And, and you're actually literally able to watch the numbers go up. That's such a subtle thing, and I know... Your your hyper rational finance brain is like, hey, Alexis, don't be a dumb monkey. Like that's not your 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 primate brain just likes seeing the numbers go up, but it's not making it any faster. <laughs> but my dumb monkey brain is looking at that, going, man, that's amazing. Like that feels it just feels so no. much better. You know, uh, us finance people can can make fun of what you're saying all we want, but the reality mm. is we can't ignore it because what you're getting at is this is the gamification of everything. Yes. Financial services yeah. included. Yeah. And that Facts. is an incredibly mm. profound unlock when it comes to thinking about how the younger generation in particular interacts mm. with financial services, right? Mm. I mean, if they think of everything as a game because they've live online their entire lives grown up digitally and expect to your point such a great user experience they demand Mm. it and Mm. if they demand that type of user experience it better be instantaneous because they are probably used to ordering ubers they're probably used to (laughs) seeing videos on tiktok and taking in these bite-sized chunks i mean last Mm. week we talked about lulu learning learning finance on tiktok yeah, that's in bite-sized chunks, right? She also does some pretty good roasting videos of you. But uh, I will not that's, come uh, <laughs> But but that's like profound when you think about how individuals are going to interact with their financial service providers and the yeah. way in which they think about investing in savings in the future. Because it has to be gamified, or else people won't stay engaged. It's very true. Gosh. All right. Well, this is man. We've I think this is the start of a, I think a really interesting next few years because that ability to gamify through software is not the domain of a lot of folks in in finance and arguably not a lot of folks in fintech because it hasn't been, I mean, you're right, you're talking about a skill set that comes from consumer social, that comes from gaming, literally. And and everyone's, I think, rightly excited about the potential for esports and gaming as an industry. But that talent is going to spread everywhere. Well, so I guess that brings up two two questions. One is, mm-hmm. should traditional financial services firms or even neo banks and kind of neo brokers should they be looking mm-hmm. to hire people from gaming businesses, whether it's the Zynga's, the Farmvilles, or or newer versions of that? Uh, 
yeah, you know, <laughs> Fortnite, et cetera, as Zynga's ways to help people poached. understand how to, how to gamify things. I guess that's yeah. one. And two is, do you think that other countries may leapfrog the way in which they provide financial services to people? So take Africa, for example. We look, mm. actually looked at a mobile gaming company there recently. Who's to say they can't provide financial services to people because people are playing these mobile games all the time on their cell phones? Yeah. And then why not loop in small businesses? <clears throat> and why not loop in transaction components? And we've seen it with in, in Southeast Asia, right? Mm. With um, with C Group, which is you know, started as a gaming business, I believe, and then basically mm. became a super app. So, like, are there lessons to be learned? Oof, because got, they're starting from ground, like ground zero in a sense, and they can build from the bottom rather than kind of try to layer onto an in yeah. existing or incumbent financial services ecosystem. A hundred percent. We got to do a whole other episode on this. Uh, there's a company called Axie Infinity, which is built on the blockchain, very popular. I mean, it's a global platform, very popular in particular in like Southeast Asia and countries like the Philippines, where we're seeing community and capital intersect with gaming. I mean, it is literally a game, but they've engineered different ways for different people to contribute to the ecosystem in such a way that like there are people making a living in the Philippines playing this game. And, you know, we can have the broader sort of societal implications discussion about that. But the, the thing to realize is there are people right now spending just as much time on Candy Crush and not getting anything for it. They are being used to sell ads. That is it. And there are people in the West, people here in the US are wasting hours and hours of their day, you could argue, um, being harvested for their attention that they get no compensation for. And so what I actually like about this platform is there is value here and, and we can create a universe where I know it sounds bonkers that someone could make a living from playing a video game uh, especially like a simple, fairly simple mobile game, not like competitively. But again, people are giving it away right now. And it actually feels more honest to me that they get compensated for it instead of just being harvested for ads. Well, mm. when you say mm. something like that, the, mm -hmm. the founder of OpenSea said this, he believes in the tokenization of everything. I, I don't know if that's mm. entirely true. Mm. But when you think about the power of NFTs displacing platforms, the middlemen who are just rent seekers, Mm -hmm. Right. All of these social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, they they monetize content, but they monetize it for themselves through engagement and ads, but not through the end consumer who's actually mm -hmm. either consuming those ads. They're just kind of the passive recipient of that or the creator who's actually contributing that content. They don't get to keep a lot of their content either. So whether right. it's consumer social, whether it's video games, mobile gaming, Right. That, I mean, it feels like NFTs are an incredibly powerful unlock for all of what you're just saying. It's, it is definitely going to be a part of the infrastructure uh, and an important one. Dang. All right. Okay. We got to, we got to cook more on this. Uh, I got to jump to, uh, I think it's a meeting about Alt actually. So good stuff in the works. Ta -da! There we go. Tony, upload, Alt, right? upload the outro music that young Spielberg made us. You're going to, you're going to have fun with this. Oh, all right. I'm going to have to try that. But we got it. Yeah, yeah, we got, we got to yeah, get man. young Spielberg's outro music on here. <laughs> oh yes. Awesome.